Father, I thank you for your son. We come here, all of us come here this morning because of what Christ has done for us and what you did in Christ's life in raising him from the dead. He didn't raise himself. You were pleased with his sacrifice. You raised his sinless dead body from the grave. We look back on that victory over sin and death, thinking about what it means to us, that by faith that same victory is imputed to us. If there's anyone here who doesn't understand that reality, the, the beauty of it, that Christ's death, burial, and resurrection can become their death, burial, and resurrection, and that his victory over sin and death can become their victory over sin and death through faith in Christ and what he's done, then I pray that truth would be made known to them. I thank you for all the believers here who have come to worship you and give thanks for your son, but I'd pray perhaps even more fervently for any unbelievers who have joined us this morning and perhaps even more fervently for any unbelievers who have joined us who believe that they are believers and will be deceived about their salvation, that today would be the day of salvation for any unbelievers in our presence. Lord, that you'd open their hearts to the gospel, convict them about their need to be saved, grant them repentance of sin and faith in Christ. Help me to do justice to these very powerful verses as Paul deals with this situation in the Corinthian church that I think ask some uh, very important questions that we must consider as well if we were to deny Christ's resurrection. So help me to, to faithfully exposit your word. If there's anything that's not in my notes, you'd have me share with your people. I pray you'd bring that to my, to my mouth. And I pray that you'd work in each person's heart, giving them an attentiveness and receptiveness to your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen, amen. All right. Well, it's great to be here and celebrate Christ's resurrection with all of you. I've been looking forward to this sermon. Thoroughly enjoyed studying it this past week and hope that it's as edifying for you as it was for me in preparing it. So the title this morning is For If Christ Is Not Raised. For If Christ Is Not Raised. And so we have paused our verse-by-verse study through Luke's gospel for a special sermon in honor of Christ's resurrection. For those of you who were at last year's annual meeting, you might remember that I said one of the changes I wanted to make this past year was meeting with the young men in the church. And so I've been doing that, and typically I meet with them at the Oak Tree Restaurant. And so because I'm there, you know, one to three times per week, I have become a pretty familiar face. The waitresses typically know what I want to order without even having to ask. They'll just come to the table and say, you want your cob salad again? And, and I'll say yes. And then they ask the young man I'm with what he wants to eat. I have heard that there are some people who will have cob salad without blue cheese dressing, which is kind of like having popcorn without butter. It's fairly offensive. (laughs) If I'm sitting with a young man and he orders a cob salad and he doesn't get blue cheese from it, I don't anticipate meeting with him beyond that. (laughs) So the other day I decided to mix things up and I deviated from my usual meal. And to be honest, I had some doubts because the cob salad has been such a consistent enjoyable meal for me, some doubts about whether I was making the right decision, and my doubts were confirmed when they brought our plates of food, and Justin Everett's plate looked much better than mine. So I asked Justin if we could trade. He said he would not trade with me, and that's when I stopped meeting with him. (laughs) Now, quick question. Be honest. Any of you ever have doubts about your order after it's placed? Yeah? Okay. I think having doubts is part of our Christian lives. Sometimes we have doubts about insignificant things like our orders at restaurants, or we can doubt the clothes that we put on after we get dressed. Unless you're one of those famous people who always wear the same clothes. Who comes to mind? Rhea? 
okay, first, I didn't know Rhea was famous, and second, I didn't know she wore the same clothes I'd make. Okay, well, who, who said one of them? Someone say Steve Jobs? Dave. Dave's upside. <laughs> Where's Dave? That one's true. That one's true. It's red or blue. It is red or blue. And for years, Dave's been telling me it's not red. What's the color you say it is? Where is Dave? Huh? Burgundy. For years, he's been saying burgundy, and I consistently say red to annoy him. So it's red or blue every Sunday. Okay, Steve Jobs, Mark Zuckerberg, Albert Einstein, Bill Gates, Barack Obama. I was going over the sermon with Katie, and I was reading about the reasons these men do this to, to save time on making decisions or save their mental energy for other things or not waste time figuring out what to put on. I'm going over the sermon with Katie, and I said, you know, this sounds super attractive. I think I'm going to start doing this. And Katie goes, you pretty much already do. <laughs> I think there's a lot of variety. Am I going to wear my black shirt or my blue shirt or my green shirt, you know? Other times we have doubts about more significant things. Should I have taken this job? Should we have moved here? Should I have made this purchase? Should I have married this person? And I'll say you never have to have that last doubt because the moment you got married, you were married to the, to the right person. Now, what does this have to do with this morning's sermon? Well, that's a good question. Believe it or not, what were the Corinthians doubting? Not the order at restaurants. What were they doubting? Their resurrections. Of all things, look with me at verse 12. Paul says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, if that's been preached, that Christ is raised from the dead, how can some of you be saying that there is no resurrection of the dead? So it had been preached that that Christ was resurrected and the Corinthians were doubting their own resurrections. So I'll briefly explain why the Gentiles and the Jews both struggled with this. For the Gentiles, they struggled with the doctrine of resurrection of the saints because of their Jewish philosophies, pagan philosophies and religions that influenced them. Some of you might remember when Paul was preaching at Mars Hill or at Athens, he preached about the resurrection in Acts 17.32 says, when they heard Paul preach the resurrection of the dead, some did what? Does anyone remember? They mocked. They mocked what Paul was preaching. And that's because they thought everything physical was bad. And so they couldn't believe that God would raise physical bodies from the dead. John MacArthur said the idea was actually repulsive and disgusting to them that God would raise bodies from the dead. The Jews struggled with resurrection because of the Sadducees who didn't believe in anything supernatural. Listen to these verses. Acts 4.1, as Peter and John were speaking to the people, the Sadducees were greatly annoyed because Peter and John were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And so the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. Katie told me not to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. (laughs) That is why they were sad, you see. (laughs) So Paul makes this logical point. Some of you are like, man, he should have listened to her. He should have listened to her. Well, next, next year on Resurrection Sunday, I'll probably make the same joke, so... I don't have a whole lot of them. Paul makes a logical point. If you believe that Christ was raised from the dead, then you should believe what? If you believe Christ was raised from the dead, then you should believe that believers, yeah, that you will be raised from the dead, or that you, believers in Christ, will be raised from the dead. So if they doubted Christ's resurrection, they wouldn't be believers. 
let me say that one more time if they doubted christ's resurrection or denied christ's resurrection they wouldn't be believers and why is that because there are essential doctrines that must be believed to be a believer and christ's resurrection is one of those people who deny christ's resurrection are heretics now the corinthians had many problems as the first 14 chapters demonstrate but they were not heretics but this reveals why this sermon is so important because there are numerous heretics professing to be believers according to articles i found from 2017 one-fourth of professing christians deny the resurrection which means that one-fourth of professing christians are heretics now unfortunately most of the articles i read or probably every single article i read said one-fourth of christians deny the resurrection and that is a particularly unfortunate wording because it's communicating to the readers that you can deny christ's resurrection and still be a believer which simply is not true which is why i've repeatedly said one-fourth of professing christians deny the resurrection now this one-fourth they must not be familiar with these verses because this is the exact problem that paul deals with he points out how terrible it is if they deny the resurrection and he plays this game with them he plays this game with his readers and the game is basically let's pretend that you're right and there's no resurrection and so we're going to play that same game as we go through these verses so look with me at verse 13. paul says if there is no resurrection of the dead then not even christ has been raised and so paul starts working backward and he makes the obvious point that if they're denying the resurrection of the believer of believers then even christ himself cannot be raised if christians can't be resurrected christ couldn't have been resurrected and if christ hasn't been raised look at verse 14 to see what that means if christ has not been raised our preaching is in vain your faith is in vain and this brings us to lesson one if christ is not raised part one a believer's preaching is worthless we'll talk more about our faith being worthless or in vain after verse 17 when paul repeats that same thing the word vain occurs a few times in these verses so let me briefly explain what it means the greek word for vain is kenos it's related to the word kenosis it's the same word that's used in philippians 2 to when to translate christ emptying himself that's where we come up with the doctrine of the kenosis that christ emptied himself of certain things at the incarnation he didn't empty himself of his deity but he emptied himself of his uh, glory he did not look on earth like he looked in heaven he emptied himself of knowledge he had to learn his mind became this clean slate which is why throughout his earthly life or at least earlier in his earthly life it says that he grew in knowledge and understanding and you say well how could jesus who's god in the flesh grow in knowledge and understanding well because of the kenosis he emptied himself he had to, if he wasn't a baby who could speak right he wasn't a baby who had superior intellect to all other babies he was like every other baby and he had to grow and he had to learn so that's the kenosis well kenos that's the word there for vain which is to say that paul says our preaching is vain or our preaching is empty if christ has not been resurrected so what this means is every single time someone preached every single sermon you ever heard 
Every teaching at Sunday school, every home fellowship you attended, when someone taught God's word, every midweek service, when you heard a message, every time you've heard a sermon on the radio, every message at funerals, when people told love the deceased loved ones that they would see their deceased family member or friend again, friend again, every time the gospel was shared, every time parents shared the word with their children, all of that preaching was what? Without Christ's resurrection. It was vain. It was empty. It was worthless, essentially. Thousands upon thousands of sermons preached. Just this morning, I was trying to make sure my sermon was ready, or the sermon page for the, for the sound guys, and I went to Sermon Audio, which I'm very thankful for that ministry, and the site was down, and I believe the reason it was down was probably because of the heavy load on the servers on, on Easter Sunday. Well, just the thousands of sermons that are uploaded, which again, I'm very thankful for, every Sunday on Sermon Audio would be worthless. Every sermon ever preached, every time someone ever opened God's Word or shared it with others, it has been vain or empty or worthless without Christ's resurrection. Not just our preaching that's vain without Christ's resurrection. Look at verse 15. We are found to be misrepresenting God. What does it mean if you misrepresent someone or something? You're a what? You're a liar because we testified. He says, we have found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. This brings us to the next part of lesson one. If Christ is not raised, part two, New Testament authors are liars. I preach Christ's resurrection, but believe it or not, if Christ wasn't resurrected, I'm not a liar. Do you know what I am? It's the same thing I'm doing with all of you. I'm a deceiver, and I'm deceived, and I am deceiving. I'm not a liar, though, because I've been deceived by whom if Christ wasn't resurrected? Think about this. Why do I believe Christ is resurrected? Because of who? Because of the New Testament authors, because of what they wrote. They're the liars. I'm not lying. I'm deceived, and now I'm deceiving you by preaching Christ's resurrection. But they're the ones with the greater accountability. The New Testament authors are the liars because they claimed to be eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ when he wasn't, in fact, resurrected. Look at verse 4. Paul says that he, this is Jesus, Jesus was buried, he's raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and now Paul lists several people who saw Christ after his resurrection. In verse 5, Paul says he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, then he appeared to the other 11 or to the 12 total. Verse 6, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time after his resurrection, many of them who were still alive at the time Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians, though some of them had also fallen asleep or died. Verse 7, then the resurrected Christ appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and then last of all, as to an untimely born, Paul says that Christ, the resurrected Christ, appeared to me. Now skip to verse 11. Verse 11, Paul says, whether then it was I or they, referring to the witnesses of Christ's resurrection that he just mentioned in the previous verses, he says, we preach, and so you believed. So Paul says, we've been preaching Christ's resurrection because we are eyewitnesses, and you have believed because of our preaching. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But the fact is, if Christ wasn't resurrected, that you can't help but say anything other than 
all of these individuals were lying about what they claimed to have witnessed. Not only would they be liars, they themselves would be some of the worst deceivers who have ever lived. When you think about all of the thousands of people who were martyred for their faith, people willing to be tortured, willing to go to their deaths because of the preaching of these individuals that Christ had been resurrected when he hadn't been. Think of the countless other people who might not have lost their lives but have sacrificed so much living for Christ because they believed the lies that these men preached if Christ wasn't resurrected. Now, while we're on the subject of the apostles lying, let me share something with you. Charles Colson or Chuck Colson was involved in the Watergate scandal with Richard Nixon. After that, he became a Christian, and this is what he wrote. He said, I know the resurrection is a fact, and the Watergate scandal proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Each of them were beaten, tortured, stoned, put in prison, they would not have endured that if it were not true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me that 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? That's absolutely impossible. So according to Chuck Colson, a man very familiar with cover-ups, says there's no way that the 12 apostles could have perpetuated a lie for 40 years and go to their deaths for it. And although God's word is the testimony for us, when we look at church history, one of the other strong testimonies, obviously still second to God's word, is the martyrdom of so many first century Christians. Because at that point that you're going to die, if you're deceived or doubting what you believe, that's when you throw up your hands and say what? I mean, when you're like, when you're about to be placed into the Colosseum to be devoured by lions, or you're going, to be, you're going to be lowered into that pot of boiling oil, unless you reject Christ, that's the point where if you have doubts, you say what? I was joking. I was joking. My bad. Nope, I don't, I don't believe. I don't, I, I don't have faith in Christ. But for those thousands of first century Christians to, to be tortured and to go to their deaths, is a great demonstration of their faith in Christ's resurrection. Look at Paul's point in verse 16. He says, if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. So this sounds familiar because Paul said this back in verse 13. So for the second time, in verse 13, he said, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And Paul said this twice because of such an important point. He wants them to consider that there's, if there's no resurrection of the dead for believers, then Christ couldn't have been resurrected. And if Christ wasn't resurrected, look at Paul's next point in verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile. Again, this sounds familiar because Paul said the same thing back in verse 14. If Christ hasn't been raised, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And this brings us to the next part of lesson one. If Christ is not raised, a believer's faith is worthless. If Christ is not raised, a believer's faith is worthless. Paul said this twice in these short verses. Anytime precious space is taken up in God's word to repeat something, it tells us of the significance. 
And so twice Paul wanted them to consider that if they deny the resurrection of Christ, then their faith is worthless. Some years ago, I was getting my hair cut by this woman, and I noticed that she had this Chinese symbol on her arm, and so just trying to start a conversation with her, I asked, it what it, I asked her what it meant, and she said, faith. And I was immediately curious because I wondered if she was a believer or what her faith was in. And when I said, faith in what, it seemed to catch her off guard. And my suspicion is she thought simply having faith was a good thing. And so when I said, well, faith in what, she took the, she pauses for some moment, and, and then she finally just kind of says, well, faith in just anything, faith in yourself, believing in yourself, just, just faith. And her, her answer captures a common belief that simply having faith is good. But it's important to understand that faith is justified or legitimized by what it's placed in. It is only the object of the faith that demonstrates whether that faith is legitimate or illegitimate, valuable or worthless. And I'll give you an example. You're demonstrating faith throughout your life. I mean, even just sitting in these pews, you had faith that the pews were going to do what? I'm not joking, but what? Hold you. You, got in the, you drove to church this morning, and you demonstrated significant faith. You got into a vehicle that contained gallons of flammable gasoline. You started this vehicle, and you had faith that it was not going to blow up, even though you're driving on gallons of flammable gasoline. The vehicle became hot. There were sparks. If you were not driving the vehicle, then you also had faith in what? Besides the vehicle, you had faith if you were not driving in the driver that this person was going to get you to church safely. And you also, although you might not have thought about it, you also had faith in the other drivers on the road because you're heading toward them, you know, 50, 60 miles per hour, or maybe 70 or 80 if you're late for church. And you had faith that they were not going to drift over a few feet into your lane and crash into you head on. Now, because you're sitting here this morning, it seems that your faith was well-placed, right? Have any of you ever seen fail army videos before? Some of you are like, you don't want to admit it because you've laughed at them and then you felt super bad when you laughed at them, but fail army videos are a collection of videos of people trying to do things but failing. It is an army of people failing to climb something, but then they end up falling, right? Or drive or ride something, but then they end up crashing. Or carry something, but then they end up dropping it. And so I was at the allergist the other day with a couple of my girls, and I think it was Karis looks over at my computer because I was trying to look at some examples of fail army videos to show the church, and she goes, what are you doing right now? And I said, I'm working on my sermon. (laughs) She goes, you're working on your... I said, I know this doesn't look good, Karis. I'm I'm researching for my sermon. I'm watching these fail army videos to prepare for Sunday. So anyway... (laughs) The point is, you watch these videos and you can see that these people had considerably misplaced their faith. They put faith in their ability to do certain things. And so, my point is, it doesn't matter how much faith you have. It matters what that faith is placed in. And if you put your faith in the wrong thing, then you fail. In fact, if you put your faith in your ability to do something and you fail, you could even end up on the internet in one of those fail army videos, right? Now, if you put your faith in Christ, and Christ has not been resurrected, then your faith is what? 
It is severely misplaced. It is, Paul himself says, you say, this sounds pretty harsh, Pastor Scott. You're saying that if we put our faith in Christ and he wasn't resurrected, then our faith is, I didn't say that our faith is vain. I didn't say that. Who said that? Paul said that. God said that to you through the page of the scripture. He's the one that said, if you put faith in Christ, but he's not resurrected, then your faith is vain or empty or kenos, empty or worthless. If we put our faith in Christ, but he didn't do what we thought he did, or we put our faith in the most significant event that has ever happened, but it did not happen, then our faith is worthless. And look at the consequences in the rest of verse 17. Paul says, you are still in your sins. And this brings us to the next part of lesson one. If Christ does not raise, part four, a believer's sins are unforgiven. A believer's sins are unforgiven. Let me ask you a question. I think it'll be a simple question. What separated Christ from others, his death or resurrection? Okay, let's try it again. What separated Christ from others, his death or resurrection? His resurrection, I mean, who can't die, right? (laughs) Lots of people have deaths. We will have deaths. His death is what made him like everyone else his resurrection created the separation now maybe you're saying well what about other people who are raised from the dead who comes to mind was raised from the dead lazarus might be the most famous i think peter's mother-in-law elijah and elijah let me be clear about something there's a difference between being raised from the dead and being resurrected only one person has ever been resurrected but a handful of people have been raised lazarus in other words lazarus and others were raised from the dead only to do what sometime later jesus was raised from the dead never to die again that's resurrection so how could his resurrection set his death apart from other deaths because christ's resurrection demonstrated that he was a sinless man follow me on this romans six twenty three: the wages of sin is death because jesus if the wages of sin is death if a sinless person died then death would not be able to hold on to that person the grave would not be able to keep them which is what paul preached at pentecost acts 2 24 god raised jesus up from the dead loosing the pangs of death as we sang in the first song up from the grave he arose because it was not possible for him to be held by death why was it not possible for jesus to be held by death or kept in the grave because of his sinlessness when he was resurrected it showed or demonstrated his victory over sin and death and he passes that victory along to us so we say this jesus died for our sins i say that preach that we'll continue to preach it but it was his resurrection that forgave us and saved us listen to this acts 5 31 peter said god exalted jesus to the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to israel and forgiveness of sins now did you catch that i might have read it kind of quickly but peter is talking about forgiveness of sins and he did not look to christ's death he looked to christ's resurrection because he's talking about forgiveness of sins we would expect him to mention christ's death but he mentioned christ's resurrection because his resurrection demonstrated his victory over sin and death that he was a sinless man who could not be held by the grave romans 4 25 jesus was delivered up for our trespasses now at this point you're like okay we're talking about jesus being delivered up crucified for our sins or trespasses 
And then it says, and justified or raised for our justification. Romans 4.25, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Possibly not worded the way we would expect. We would expect it to say that Jesus died for our justification, but it says he's raised for our justification because that resurrection demonstrates he's our sinless, perfect substitute. And this is why Paul asked the Corinthians all of that to explain why Paul, what he said, all of that to explain why Paul said what he said in verse 17, that you're still in your sins. If you deny the resurrection, you are denying the forgiveness of your sins as well, because without the resurrection, there's no justification. You're still dead in trespasses. Look at Paul's next consideration, verse 18. Those who have fallen asleep or died in Christ have perished. This brings us to the next part of lesson one. If Christ is not raised, the dead cease existing. For if Christ is not raised, part five, the dead cease existing. Let me explain what Paul means when he says perish. There are places in Scripture where perish or perishing can refer to going to hell. But right here, it doesn't mean going to hell. It means ceasing existing because if there's no resurrection then the reality for every single person is annihilation. All we have to look forward to is this life, which is what Paul says in verse 19. He says, if in Christ we have hope only in this life, or hope in this life only, because without Christ's resurrection, we only have hope in this life. All the, this life is all there is for us. Then he says, we are of all people the most to be pitied. So with no resurrection, there's only hope in this life. That's all there is for us. And if this life is the only life there is, well, that's pretty dismal for everyone if this life is all there is. But it's particularly dismal for one group, which Paul identified. He says, we are the most to be pitied. And who's that? Who's we? Paul uses the word we twice in verse 19. Who's we? Believers, Christians, and this brings us to the next part of lesson one, or last part. If Christ isn't raised, a believer should be pitied. I don't really like to repeat a verse in my lesson, but I don't know a better way to word it. If Jesus was not raised, we, or believers or Christians, are the most to be pitied because what have we done with our lives? We've wasted them. We have wasted our time serving and worshiping an unrisen Christ. Everything we've done has been false and foolish. We have believed lies, and making it even worse, we have lived our lives based on those lies, demonstrating how deceived and gullible we are. We have denied ourselves numerous times. We have given up earthly pleasures. We have forfeited enjoyment to live holy lives for no reason whatsoever. Every single sacrifice that we have ever made for Christ has been worthless. We have suffered in this life with no hope of glory in the next life. Christianity would be the cruelest hoax that has ever been played on humanity, and we are the victims of it. So we have been living for the next life when we could have been living for this life or for this moment what what could have been our motto or what what should have been our motto without christ's resurrection let's just 
eat, drink, and be merry. But we gave it all up for a man who is still dead in the grave. It was all for nothing, and for that we should be the most pitied. I read about an elderly woman who went to church her whole life, but then she heard someone on the radio deny Christ's resurrection. She believed the man's argument. She concluded that everything she had lived for was untrue, and then in her hopelessness, she committed suicide. That's how dismal it was for her to realize that she had lived her life for this lie. But now, the beautiful, dramatic change in verse 20, Paul says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, and he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And this is what we celebrate today. First fruits, because it's not a common term in our vernacular, it was the first produce of a harvest which indicated a greater harvest to follow. And so it's a wonderful title for Christ that he's the first fruits of the resurrection because it's to say that he's the first to be resurrected with a greater harvest of resurrections to follow. The other side of these verses is that because Jesus was raised, the opposite of everything Paul said is true. So if Paul has all these verses about if Christ is not raised, but then we consider Christ is raised, then everything he said now becomes the opposite. And this brings us to lesson two. Because Christ was raised, part one, and unbelievers' works are worthless. Because Christ was raised and unbelievers' works are worthless. The New Testament is clear that we're saved by grace through faith and not by works. Ephesians 2 8, by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, if unbelievers, if unbelievers do not repent and put their faith in Christ, then they'll stand before the Lord someday. And instead of being judged based off Christ's perfect sinless life or his righteousness being imputed to them, if they've rejected Christ, then they're going to be judged by what? Judged by how well they lived. It's their lives that will be judged. When I stand before the Lord someday, I'm, it's not my life that is seen. It is Christ's perfect sinless life. His righteousness has been imputed to me. It is though God the Father would look and see his son standing in my place versus seeing me, which is an incredibly wonderful encouragement considering the sins I've committed and the things that I've done in my life, how far short I have fallen of God's glory, that on the day of judgment, God will look at me but see his son, his perfect, sinless, righteous son in my place. No greater encouragement than that. But for the person who's, that's what it is to be in Christ, hidden in him so that the Father would see Christ instead of you. But for the person who has rejected Christ or is in, in unbelief, God will see that person and that person will be judged based on how well, or I really should say how poorly, they've lived. Twice in Revelation 20 in verses 12 and 13, it says that unbelievers will be judged according to their works. They have nothing else to be judged according to. They can only be judged according to the way that they lived. Twice it says that, Revelation 20 in verse 13, all those before the great white throne, every unbeliever throughout all human history, resurrected at that moment to stand before this throne that Christ himself sits on, 
having rejected him and being judged by how well they've lived. And then two verses later, in Revelation 20, verse 15, it says all of them are thrown into the lake of fire, which demonstrates that not one single person had the works to qualify for heaven. Not one single unbeliever throughout all of human history has ever been good enough to get to heaven because they've all sinned. Nobody's works could ever be good enough to get them into heaven. In that sense, works are worthless. No matter how many you do, there will never be enough. It's like the person that runs and jumps across the Grand Canyon. No matter how close they get, they didn't get very close. You get the longest long jumper, is that a way to say it? The best long jumper, the person who jumps the longest in long jump, whatever. And they line up and they jump further than you. They jump two or three times further than you. That's how close they're going to get to making it actually having to be even further away from that. We're never close by our works. Our works are worthless in that sense. If our works could be good enough, then Jesus would have died for no reason, which was something I don't know why I never thought when I was in the Catholic Church. I thought I was saved by works, and I don't know why it never, con- why it, it, it never, I never considered that if I could be saved by works, which is what I thought, that Jesus would have died for nothing. Why did he have to come and hang on a cross in my place if I could be good enough to get to heaven in my own effort? The next part of lesson two, because Christ was raised, part two, New Testament authors are not liars. Instead, they are watchmen. The opposite is true. They're not liars. They are watchmen preaching the truth, warning about the judgment or danger to come. Every New Testament author is a watchman for unbelievers. I'll read a few verses that describe what watchmen do. Ezekiel 33, verse 3. The watchman, he blows the trumpet, he warns the people. And then if anyone who hears the trumpet does not take warning, and that's you if you're sitting here today, you've heard from watchmen, and I'm not referring to myself. I'm referring to Paul in his letter to the Corinthians. A watchman has warned you. God has spoken to you today. If you sit here, you have heard the gospel. You have no excuse. The trumpet's been blown. You've been warned. And if anyone hears the trumpet and doesn't take warning, the sword comes and takes him away, and his blood will be on his head. He heard the sound of the trumpet. You heard the sound of the trumpet and didn't take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. So you could save your life today if you were unsaved. Watchmen did just what you expect. They warned the people. But what was and wasn't a watchman's responsibility? What was and wasn't a watchman's responsibility? A watchman's responsibility was preaching the truth, warning, but they were not responsible with how people responded. So they stood on the wall and they said, the enemy's coming, but they don't grab people by the collar and drag them out of the city like the angels did with Lot, right? That's not going to be transpiring with anyone. Nobody's going to be grabbed by the collar and forced along. So you're warned, but the responsibility is yours to repent and put faith in Christ. The next part of lesson two, because Christ was raised, part three, an unbeliever's sins are forgiven. Or unforgiven, excuse me. (laughs) Sorry about that. An unbeliever's sins are unforgiven. Because Christ was raised, an unbeliever's sins are unforgiven. Acts 4 verse 10 said, God raised Jesus from the dead. There is salvation in no one else, 
There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Christ is resurrected. You cannot find salvation anywhere else. If unbelievers reject Christ, if you sit here and you reject Christ, there is no other way for your sins to be forgiven. There is no other way for you to be saved. There is no sacrifice you could offer. There is no religion that you could follow. You will die with your sins unforgiven and stand guilty before God. The next part of lesson two, because Christ was raised, part four, the dead live eternally in hell or heaven. The dead live eternally in hell or heaven. Because Christ was resurrected, it's evidence that the dead do not cease existing. The opposite of the previous lesson is true. The dead do not cease existing. If Jesus wasn't raised, nobody would be raised. But because Jesus was raised, believers and unbelievers will also be raised. Now, we typically talk about resurrection of believers. Lesser known is that unbelievers are also resurrected because I said resurrection is to be raised from the dead, never to die again. Listen to what Jesus said, Matthew 25, 46. The unrighteous will go into eternal punishment referring to hell, but the righteous into eternal life. That's referring to the resurrection of unbelievers as well. Every person who has ever lived will be sent to one of these locations to spend eternity. And it is your response to Christ that determines which of those locations you will spend eternity in. The last part of lesson two, because Christ was raised, part five, an unbeliever should be most pitied. It is unbelievers who should be most pitied. Because Christ has been raised, think of how verse 19, just go ahead and look at verse 19 with me and see how it can be reversed for unbelievers. Let me say it one more time. Because Christ was raised, and Paul's hypothetical game is the opposite, read verse 19 now. Unbelievers have hope what? In this life only. They are, of all people, to be most pitied. This life is an unbeliever's only hope. This is all they have. Even if unbelievers could live another 700 years, even another 7,000 years, they will spend eternity in hell. And how could you not pity them when that is their future, no matter what they do in this life? no matter what they accomplish. And I'm not saying that all athletes or musicians or famous people are unbelievers or ungodly, but they're the people who seem to us to have accomplished the most, won the most awards, attained the most notoriety. But no matter what they do in this life, no matter what an unbeliever accomplishes, no matter how good they think they are, if they reject Christ, it means absolutely nothing. Now, if you are an unbeliever who hasn't repented and believed in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, here's what you could think. You could think, well, I'm sitting here because someone invited me. And I don't know, maybe some of you are here because you received an invitation or you saw one of the cards that was placed at your work or around the neighborhood. And so you sit here and this is what you think. I'm here because someone invited me. Or perhaps you woke up and you thought, well, there's a chance that this whole Christianity thing is true and good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell, which is not true because all of us are bad people, but you're under this persuasion, and so it's Easter, and so you say, well, I better go to church at least once in a while, 
because of this whole, I want some fire insurance, and I don't want to die and find out that this was true, and I never got to church at all, so I'll just go to church on Easter, one of the two times I go, along with Christmas. That's not why you're here. You're here because God's Holy Spirit has drawn you. You are drawn here by God himself to hear this loving message. You are drawn here to hear God plead with you to be saved. You're here because God loves you. He wants you to hear the truth. You're a sinner, and he doesn't want you to spend eternity in hell. So he has allowed you this incredible grace of hearing the gospel and being spared of eternal damnation. Do not take this for granted. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. What better day to be saved? What better day to look forward to a resurrection unto eternal life than the day that celebrates Christ's resurrection? After this, we're going to have some baptisms. I'm not sure how much Pastor Nathan's going to elaborate, but when each of these people are baptized, they are communicating to you that they have put faith in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection when they stand still, die, are buried under the water, and then Pastor Nathan or or perhaps Nathan Mitchell, raises them up from the water. So as you watch this, watch the gospel, which God has also, by his grace, allowed you to witness today, this testimony of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Then after that, if you have any questions, I'll be up front. I'll stay till any, anyone who has a question has had the opportunity to speak to me, no matter how long that takes. It would be a great privilege to be able to have that time with you. Let me discourage you from leaving if you have anything on your heart that you'd like to share with me. Father, we thank you so much for Christ's resurrection from the dead. Excuse me. Father, we thank you for your son's resurrection. Thank you for his victory over sin and death that is given to us by faith in him. We thank you for his righteousness that is imputed to us and our sin that is imputed to him, that he paid for at the cross for those who find themselves in him. And I'd pray for any who are not believers, who are unbelievers, who are outside Christ, that today would be the day of salvation for them, that they would recognize that it is not coincidental or chance that they are here today, but that you have brought them, drawn them by your Holy Spirit. And they could even be a child, perhaps a child of a believing family, or perhaps a child of a Christian family who's attended church some number of times in the past. Let not these children take for granted that they have been raised in Christian families, finding themselves in church today, able to hear the gospel, and that they would respond to that invitation to repent of their sins and turn from that to Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.